Well, this morning we're kicking off a new sermon series as we approach the weeks leading up to Easter. And this new sermon series is called Famous Last Words. And in this series, we're going to be looking at the final words of Jesus upon the cross. And now you'll see some of them in the background there. And the reason we're focusing on these last words is because last words, the last words that somebody often gives in their life, tend to have significance. They often tend to have power. When, when someone is about to cross over to death, a lot of times they try to convey to other people some wisdom. They try to let people know the legacy they want to leave behind, or, or they try to give one final message. And when we look at the final words of Jesus, what we find is some new insights into why he came into this world, what he wanted people to know just before he died on the cross, and we also discover why his life, his death, and his resurrection is important for us here 2,000 years later. And so we're going to be looking at different final words of his throughout the next number of weeks, and I hope that you'll make um, coming in these next number of weeks leading up to Easter a priority, because as we look at these different sets of final words, I believe that Jesus has a word for each of you, and I don't want you to miss it. And um, speaking of missing it, uh, I missed y'all last week, as, um, as I said earlier, that we were traveling in the Holy Land, and it was awesome to walk where Jesus walked and to learn more about the culture and the time to see all of these different sites and, and to kind of put it all together. And I'll be you know, talking more about the pictures and all that stuff um, in days to come, and people have already asked me this morning about the trip, and really, uh, the bottom line is it was transformative. And so if you ever have the chance to go, I encourage you to take the chance. Maybe one day I can lead a trip of people from the church. But until that day comes, you're going to have to put up with me being like your uncle at the family gatherings with this Kodak carousel, just going through pictures, you know. And so once I've shown you too many pictures, just come tell me and be like, Jonathan, we're done with Israel. Please put your pictures away. Um, and I will respect that and honor that. But today I have a few to share with you um, as I kind of share a little bit about our journey. Because on our journey, what we did is we really followed the life of Jesus. And we actually started in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And so we started, I have a picture here of the Church of the Nativity. And in this church, it's a Greek Orthodox church that has been there uh, for many, many years that's standing over the site where they believe Jesus was born. And actually on this spot, which is down in the basement, is where people go and pray and commemorate that this is the spot, according to Christian tradition, where Jesus was born. So it was amazing to go and to get to go to that spot and pray in that holy place. And so we spent some time in Bethlehem, went around through the countryside and some other places, and then we ended up going to the Sea of Galilee. And a couple weeks ago in my sermon, I talked uh, about the Sea of Galilee and how it was there when Jesus called his first disciples. And so this was early one morning um, with a boat out there, and you can see some mountains in the back. And, you know, this is the site where we got to see a number of Jesus, uh, where he did some healings, where he called his first disciples, where he did a lot of his ministry, and where he, he taught the Sermon on the Mount and other things in this region. So that was one of our favorite places, um, super powerful because a lot of the geography is, is still the same today. And then we moved on to Jerusalem, which when you look at Jesus' life, is ultimately where his life was headed. When you read the Gospels, you see that the journey is kind of heading that way. And so you can see um, this is standing on the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is over here. Um, there's the Temple Mount over there. 
um, the wall surrounding the old city. So many amazing things in Jerusalem. And as we were there, we, um, we got to go to the upper room where Jesus shared his last supper with the disciples. We got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we also got to go to the temple steps. And I have a picture of the temple steps here. And scholars say, if you want to definitively walk where Jesus walked, this is one place where you can definitely count on doing that because the steps are the exact same steps that were there 2,000 years ago. And these are steps where Jesus taught and where he um, proclaimed great truths to people, where he told some parables. I don't know if we have the picture of the steps. It just looks like steps, so it's not anything super. Uh, there they are. They're steps, right? They're concrete steps, but they're cool um, to be there and that they're the same ones today. And as we're on this journey, we're all heading to the same place, and we all know where we're heading to. And it's kind of in the background as we're going to all these amazing places and we're seeing where Jesus gave these great teachings, where Jesus loved people and healed people. We all know that it's headed to the cross, right? And throughout the journey, I I couldn't help but think about, for me at least, how sometimes it's kind of a twist in the story. It's kind of this crazy ending to it all. Well, it's not the ending, but it's close to the end because he rises again. But as we're traveling to the cross, I mean, I can't help but think, this is the man who came into this world and who perfectly loved everybody. He perfectly loved God. And then he was killed. This is a man who, who taught nonviolence. He, he taught people to turn the other cheek, to bless their enemies, and then he was executed with criminals. I mean, for me, it's kind of crazy to think that God stepped into the world that he created in the person of Jesus Christ. And humanity killed him. And so all of those thoughts were running in the back of my mind as we headed to Jerusalem, to that place where Jesus was crucified. And I remembered this quote from one of my professors in seminary who says this, We must not forget that Jesus was executed not for revolutionary violence, but for forgiving sins. Only God could forgive sins, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day knew that such an act was a subversion of their power system. It was an act of blasphemy to them. And so he was condemned to die. And if you've been in church a while or you've grown up in the South, you, you probably know this story, right? You know that Jesus was condemned to die, not just any death, but death by crucifixion, death on the cross. And now today, it can seem a little distance from us because we have crosses here. We have a couple in the front windows of our churches. Who, who all, anybody wearing some cross jewelry here? Right? We wear cross jewelry. We get cross tattoos. The cross is this image of beauty and redemption of power because Jesus rose from the grave, thanks be to God. But we often sing about the wonderful cross, the glorious cross, all of this. But in Jesus' day, it was nothing like that. In Jesus' day, the cross, plain and simple, was a tool of torture and of execution. And it was one of the worst ways that you could die. And that's the death that Jesus was sentenced to. Death on a cross where they would often flog the person beforehand. And they would attach them with nails there and oftentimes leave them for days until they died of shock, 
uh, of fluid build up in their lungs, uh, of trauma, uh, of so many other things. And oftentimes they would just leave the bodies. It was brutal. It was torturous. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you probably have some images of how violent this type of death was in your mind. But the movie doesn't bring along with it the smells and the crowds who were shouting, who were cheering, who were mocking people who would be there for days. Really, the cross is the embodiment of our worst impulses. And that's how Jesus was condemned to die. And when we read in the Bible, we read that Jesus died in a place called the place of the skull. In Aramaic, this is Golgotha. And place of the skull, skull in Latin is Calvary. And so Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull, these are all referring to the same place where Jesus was crucified. And church tradition, uh, the strongest tradition, says that this place, place of the skull, was called this because it was a region in which many people were crucified. And oftentimes the bodies would be left behind. They wouldn't be buried. And so there were skulls everywhere. And you've often heard it called, you know, the Hill of Calvary. It's, it's likely that this was a hill. This was kind of a mountain over the city. And that makes sense because when the Romans crucified people, they liked to do it in places that were highly visible. They liked to do it on roadsides, on mountains, on places that people could see for miles so that they could let people know this is what happens when you raise your voice against us. This is what happens when we want to put you down. It was a, a way that they could exert control over other people. And so towards the end of our trip and one of our last days, we went to Golgotha, the, the place that's traditionally um, recognized as that site where Jesus died. And this site is inside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And I have a picture here um, of the icon they have above this site. And below him there, you can go down and you can reach your hand and touch the bedrock upon which they believe the foot of the cross was attached. And it was from here that Jesus spoke his last words. And these last words, they wouldn't have been easy for him to say because of the pain he would have been in because of the suffering, because of the, the buildup in his lungs. But it was there that he mustered up the energy to speak to people because he had some important messages. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at a number of those messages, a number of those words, those phrases that Jesus had for people. And this morning, we're going to look at the first of them, which come to us in Luke chapter 23. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to open them up. It's also on the back of your bulletin. And what we'll find is that one of the Gospels doesn't record all of his final sayings from the cross. Instead, they all include different ones. And together, we find this complementary tradition of the seven final statements of Jesus from the cross. And so in Luke chapter 23, we read this. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene who was on his way in from the country. And they put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. And a large number of people followed him. 
including women who mourned and wailed for him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus asked, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of all of that pain, all of that suffering, Jesus speaks to his heavenly Father and says to him, Father, forgive them. Now, if you think back to some of Jesus' profound teachings, one of his most radical teachings here, we actually see him living it out. I don't know if you remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. And here, Jesus is living out his own teaching. When we come across these final words, Father, forgive them, we have to ask ourselves, who is the them that Jesus is referring to? Because there's a lot of options here. I mean, was he referring to the chief priests and the teachers of the law who were seeking to get rid of him? Was he referring to Judas, one of his disciples who sold him out for 30 pieces of silver? Or Simon Peter, who denied him? Or was he referring to the religious leadership of that day who came to arrest him like he was about to lead some violent rebellion? Or was he referring to the Romans and the soldiers who were mocking him and who were casting lots for his clothes and decorating him with all sorts of different ways? Or was he referring to the crowds that had gathered around? Because crowds would often gather and watch. Was he referring to the Jews and the Gentiles who sat there while he suffered and laughed at him and who yelled at him? I don't think this is a case of either or. I think this is a case of all of the above. Jesus was praying for all of them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And when he says they do not know what they're doing, he's not not just letting them off the hook or giving them some excuse here. Instead, he's saying, Father, they're trying to protect their own reputations, their own religious systems. They think they're doing what's right, but ultimately they don't know that they're putting to death the author of life. And as he prayed, Father, forgive them, he wasn't just praying that over them and all the people back then. He was also interceding on our behalf and he was saying to God, Father, forgive them. He was offering a word of forgiveness for you and for me today. Because you see, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, they're really events that transcend time. And so as Oscar sang a minute ago, were you there when they crucified my Lord? In some sense, we were all there. We were all there. We were all complicit. Because Jesus Christ came into this world. 
to live and to die and to rise again because of humanity's sin, because of our brokenness in our relationship with God, because God looked down at the world, his heart broke, and he wanted restoration and reconciliation. So God and Jesus Christ stepped into the story to offer a pathway of forgiveness. Forgiveness for our sins because he loved us so, so much. And so here Jesus is saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive the people of Harvest Point and the people in this community for the things they don't know that they're doing and for the things that they know exactly what they're doing. And now, this idea of forgiveness and forgiveness for our sins It's something that's, I don't know, kind of out of vogue these days. A lot of times we don't hear language of sin anymore. Instead, we talk about making mistakes, or we talk about messing up, or failing to live up to our own words. And maybe we do that because we're trying to soften it and trying to make excuses for ourselves or justify ourselves. But maybe we're doing it because we don't exactly know what sin is, because it's not a word in our common vocabulary anymore, in our just modern culture. But regardless of what we call it or whether we can identify it, the reality that has existed for so long remains the same. And that reality is this, that God created the world good out of love and that he gave us a measure of freedom to choose a relationship with him. And that when we had that freedom, Adam and Eve, and ever since then, people have been choosing their own way and choosing to move away from God. And so today, we live in a world that's full of brokenness. And we actually contribute to the brokenness as well with our own sin. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And so sin can be thought of as simply falling short of God's ideal or of God's standards as we find laid out in the Bible. A simple way to put it is falling short of God's desire for us to love Him with all that we have and all that we are and falling short of His call for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's missing the mark. It's straying from the path. It's going in our own direction rather than in God's direction. And each of us, we all sin in our own different ways. And we all justify our sin in our own different ways. And so some of us, what we do is we lie and we fudge numbers and we we just do some half-truths at work so we can get a promotion And we say that it's okay because we're trying to take care of our family. Others of us, out of pride, we look at the world and we look at all the problems and we just blame other people for all of the darkness and all of the problems and we refuse to look inside our own hearts and see how we're contributing to the brokenness. Some of us, we we struggle with the sin of gossip. And as we talk about other people, we, we subtly bring them down while trying to also bring ourselves Uh, Some people, we we just hate other people in our hearts because of their political positions, because of the ways they're living their lives, and we tell ourselves it's okay because we're not not doing anything physically to them. We're not acting out on our hate, but we have it deep in our hearts. The list could go on and on and on. We all sin in our own ways, and those are just ways that we actively sin. But there's also what we call sins of omission, These are ways that we sin passively by not doing certain things. These are ways we sin when we look out at the world and we see all the great needs and we just refuse to to step in and be a part of the solution. 
We refuse to just love other people. We just do our own thing. Like in Jesus says in Matthew 25, it's when we ignore the naked, when we don't clothe the poor, when we don't care for the needy, when we just turn the other way. Those are ways that we passively sin by not doing things that God has called us to do. And for a lot of us, what we do is we don't actively push God out of our lives. Instead, we just fill our lives with other stuff. Stuff that might be good, but that good stuff over time slowly pushes out God. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short in our own ways. And here's the thing is if we try to earn God's forgiveness, if we try to to do more good deeds so that they can weigh out our bad deeds, the scales will never balance. If we try to save money and earn money and give it to the church, give it to Harvest Point, give it to great philanthropies, if we think that just giving away resources is a way that we can buy God's forgiveness, the truth is that that's never going to be enough. There's not enough money to repay the debt that we owe. That's the bad news. But the good news is this, that God and Jesus Christ came to do what we couldn't do ourselves. He came to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay the debt that we owed. And all we have to do is open up our hearts and to receive that forgiveness that he wants to freely give us. That's the good news, that out of God's love, Jesus offers us forgiveness. And he attains forgiveness for us through his death on the cross. And there are a number of different ways to understand how Jesus' death on the cross atones for our sins. That's the big theological word, atone. Puts us back at one with God. But one of the ways to think about it is if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that the people used to have, what we find in Leviticus 16 is that, that God tells Moses that every year a priest should bring two goats, two goats before him. They should slaughter one, sprinkle its blood on the altar as an outward and visible sign of people's repentance and their desire for forgiveness. And the priest should also pray on the head of another goat, placing symbolically the sins of the people upon it and send it out into the countryside. That was called the Day of Atonement. That's what people did as a way for God to forgive them of their sins. And that can seem very foreign to us today, but in their culture, God was meeting them where they were, in this culture and in this system of sacrifices. But in these sacrifices, these were outward and visible signs of what God wanted to do inward and spiritually in these people. They were signs of the costliness of forgiveness. And so when Jesus steps into the scene and he dies for us on the cross, what we find is that Jesus, as John says, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the ultimate and final sacrifice, so we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. Like the scapegoat, that's the goat that receives all of the sins and and goes far away, Jesus took upon himself all of the sin, all of the shame, all of the guilt of the world, so that we wouldn't have to bear it and its consequences ourselves, and he removes it as far as the east is from the west for us. That's the good news. That God has done what we couldn't do for ourselves in Jesus Christ so that we could receive forgiveness from him. 
And he did all of this because of his great love for you and for me. And he didn't just do it for you and for me. He did it for our neighbors. He did it for our community. He did it for people that we don't think deserve it. He did it for the entire world. All we have to do is to receive it into our hearts because it's already been attained. And when we receive it into our hearts, our vertical relationship, our relationship with God changes. But not just our vertical relationship. Our horizontal relationships change as well. Our relationships with other people. Because you see, when we come before God and we admit to God that, that we have sinned and we have fallen short and that we're not deserving of His mercy and that we haven't earned His mercy and His forgiveness, but we find that He pours it out upon us anyway because of His great love, then it makes it a lot easier for us to go and to offer it to other people. As this relationship is restored, these relationships begin to be restored as well. And Emil and I came back from our trip on kind of a Wednesday night. We left Tel Aviv. And then Thursday morning, we landed in New York. And for a lot of the trip, I kind of stayed off social media as much as I could besides posting some pictures and tried to cut out the news because it can just be a lot. But that morning in the airport, I looked at my phone and I saw the news. The news in Florida of another shooting in another town. And I need to confess to you all that my inclination was just to ignore it. To just turn the other way because it seems so common now. But I know that God doesn't call us to turn away from pain and suffering. Instead, God calls us to turn towards it. And so I've been praying for them, and I hope you'll be praying for them, for the pain in our own community, that you'll, be, you'll step into the pain of other people in our world. So over the last few days, I've been reading news articles and different things um, about the shooting. And I came across a story of a student named Daniela Mensikol. And Daniela was locked in a classroom um, that was in the pathway. And she was hiding behind a metal filing cabinet. And when shrapnel came through the room, she, she was wounded on her side. And so on this news story, you could see the interview with her and see her bandages. A couple of her classmates were lost. And in this interview... She said something profound and honestly kind of shocking to me. She said she still believes in forgiveness, and she said this. In the back of his mind, God is with him, and I know that we all deserve a second chance, and that even for all that he caused, I forgive him. Now, her offer of forgiveness is something I don't think I could do that quickly. And in her offer of forgiveness, she wasn't saying that he shouldn't be held accountable or he shouldn't partake in the justice system that's going to do its course. But her words that she said, honestly, to me, sounded a lot like the words of Jesus. They sounded a lot like who Jesus calls us to be as his followers in this world. 
They sounded a lot like Jesus when he said upon the cross while people were inflicting pain upon him, Father, forgive them. Forgive them when they don't know what they're doing. And I believe he speaks to us today, Father, forgive them when they know exactly what they're doing. And so this morning as we close the service, I want to give you the opportunity to open up your heart and to receive this forgiveness from God. Because this is a profound gift of love that he wants every single one of us to experience. And this isn't just something that you experience one time. Receiving the gift of forgiveness from God is something that you receive over and over again in your life. Because God has provided a pathway for forgiveness, not just for your past, but also for everything you're going to do in the future as well. And so when we're seeking forgiveness from God, it's pretty simple, but I just want to lay it out for you if you're not super familiar with how to receive God's forgiveness. And the first thing that you need to do is to simply face the reality. Face the reality that you've fallen short and that you've sinned. You've sinned against God and you've sinned against other people. That's the first step. And the second step is to confess those sins to God. To tell God these things that you're ashamed of, that you're not proud of. And because we sin in specific ways, I often like to confess in specific ways. And God calls us to come to Him to confess those sins, to lay them before Him with a contrite heart, with a heart that wants to turn away from those sins in the future. And then God wants us to simply give it all to Him in prayer and to ask Him for the gift of forgiveness. He wants us to remember the good news that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and He forgives us because He loves us. And so when we come before God and we confess our sins to Him, we give them to Him and we ask Him for forgiveness, 1 John 1.9 says this, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and He will forgive us of all of our sins and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the good news. And I know that good news is sometimes hard for us to receive. But it's true for you this morning. And it's going to be true for you tomorrow. And it's going to be true for you no matter what you do in this life. Jesus Christ offers you and me undeserving sinners, unending forgiveness. All we have to do is open up our hearts to him and receive it. And so this morning as we close our service, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer and I'm going to have some just openness. I'm going to open up the prayer and just have some silence with the keys behind us because I want to give you an opportunity to just lay your heart before God. To speak to him in your own words, in your own heart, to name the things that you've done and to ask him for that gift of forgiveness and to receive that this morning because he wants to give it to you. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love, for his mercy, for his grace and his forgiveness that he offers to us. And God, we know that your son did not come into this world to condemn us, to, to place guilt upon us, God, but to remove guilt and to remove shame and to remove our sin. So God, we, become, we come before you this morning as a people, 
opening up our hearts to you, laying ourselves before you, confessing our sin to you, asking for forgiveness. So God, in these moments, we offer you our lives now. God, we lay before you now our hearts and our lives. God, we lay before you our sin and we pray that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit to help us turn from it. And God, we pray that the work that Jesus Christ has done for us would become real in our hearts and that you would pour out your forgiveness upon us today. God, forgive us for all the ways that we've sinned for all the things we've done, God, and forgive us for all the things that we've left undone. And God, fill us with your mercy today and help us as we go out from this place to be people who share your mercy and share your forgiveness with a world that desperately needs it. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his love and for his sacrifice, for his last words to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to let you know that if you offered up your heart to God and asked him for forgiveness, the good news is this, that he has forgiven you. And sometimes this can be hard for us to believe. So I just want to speak it over you. In the name of Jesus Christ this morning, you are forgiven. You have been set free. You are redeemed people. And so as people who've been forgiven and set free, let us sing praises to God.